It's time for Radio Cows, a weekly program from the Central Arkansas Library System. Every Wednesday from 6 to 6.30 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 FM, we'll share with you conversations with interesting Arkansans on primary sources, Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, interviews with some of your favorite musical artists on Arkansas Sound, content from the Butler Center's collections, information about what's happening in the library system, and much, much more. We invite you to let us know what else you want to hear by contacting us at radiocals at cows.org. This program is presented by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and the Cows Communications and Public Relations Department. For more information about Radio Cows, including links to resources mentioned in our segments, please visit the Butler Center's blog at butlercenter.org. Join us on Friday, January 13th from 5 to 8 p.m. in the Butler Center Galleries for Second Friday Art Night and the very special opening of the exhibition, The American Dream Deferred, Japanese-American Incarceration in World War II Arkansas. A combination of artwork, documents, and photography, the exhibition chronicles and explores the wartime incarceration of Japanese-Americans in Arkansas. The opening reception will feature live music by Das Loop and is free and open to the public. The exhibition was funded in part by a grant from the U.S. Department of the Interior, National Park Service, and the Japanese American Confinement Sites Grant Program. We hope to see you there. week on Primary Sources, Matt DeCampel sits down with Alan Leverett, publisher and co-founder of the Arkansas Times. Hear a little about how Alan got started in publishing, his travels through Latin America, and the beginnings of the Arkansas Times. Hello and welcome to Primary Sources, a podcast of the Central Arkansas Library System. I'm Matt DeCampel, and our guest this time is Alan Leverett. Publisher of the Arkansas Times. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, Matt. Nice to be here. Great. Um, Well, let's get all the way to the beginning. Um, We're, you know, born and raised in Arkansas, yes? Right. Uh, And uh, just talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, Well, you know, born in in Arkansas. Family moved to Miami for six years when I was a kid during the – we were there down there during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was kind of interesting. And – but we were always homesick for Arkansas. And so as soon as my dad had a chance, we all came back. What town were you born in? North Little Rock. Okay. And you came back to to Little Rock? Same house. Oh, really? How did that work? Oh, we were – we just read – we always knew we were coming home. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, we were just homesick. So uh, what were your interests growing up? Oh, you know, just about like any other kid, I guess. Sports. Uh, I had a I had a lawn mowing business, and uh, you know, just all kinds of you know, just working all the time, and uh, uh, played football at North Little Rock, and uh, you know, just normal normal childhood. Were they uh, any good when you were playing ball for the? Uh, well, they were certainly it was certainly a pretty pretty good team for me to compete with. I was I was always <laughs> a little bereft of talent. And uh, there were some very good players there on that team. But uh, also during that time, I got interested in Ayn Rand and objectivism. And uh, that sort of set me off on a conservative uh, political uh, journey that eventually wound up 
much further on the left. So it's been, <laughs> it's, right. it's been kind of a long deal. <laughs> so what uh, – I mean I can't, I, I can't assume though that even if – as you're getting into, in, into those interests that as a kid you weren't thinking, uh, boy, I want to publish an alternative uh, – you know, newspaper <clears throat> magazine. When well, I, you know, I, I got started. I was in Young Americans for Freedom, which was the largest conservative student organization in America during that time. You had SDS on the left and right. YF on the right, and um, so we had a pretty good. There was a state organization here, uh, YF, and I came up with the idea that we needed a conservative student newspaper. So I started publishing that paper in high school, but it was distributed on college campuses around the state by various chapters. And that's sort of got what got me into publishing. And then uh, I met Gary Woods with a different drummer and uh, Mike Vogler, and uh, uh, they were publishing an underground newspaper uh, on the left here. They were great guys and uh, got to know them and uh, really liked them, even though we were on pretty much different uh, political spectrums. And uh, so then I took the, I took Essence, which is the name of the paper, and took it to UALR and was, became state chairman of Young Americans for Freedom. And uh, the, the paper and myself became more libertarian and less social conservative over the years. And we published that paper for th- four years at UALR. And then I dropped out my senior year to start the Arkansas Times. So how much did, uh, as you mentioned before, living in South Florida during the Cuban Missile Crisis, how much did that kind of populate or, or color your you know, worldview or your politics or, or were you just down there scared as a, as a kid? No, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I feel pretty strongly about immigration. I'm very pro-immigration here. And so growing up around a lot of Cuban kids and then – Coming back here, uh, my wife and Mara, she and I sponsored a, a Cuban family uh, out of, actually with my business partner, Olivia Farrell, we, we sponsored three families out of Fort Chaffee. And uh, then uh, I wound up going to Cuba in 98, 99 for a month at a time. And so certainly the experience in Florida sort of primed me to be interested in that part of the world. And I've also, when I was uh, 19, I took off hitchhiking down to Mexico. Actually, I was trying to get to Chile, but <laughs> I, I didn't realize there was no highway between that connected Colombia with, with uh, uh, Panama, even though it, it was on the map, it wasn't there. And uh, so I wound up spending three months thumbing around um, Mexico, and the people there were incredibly kind, incredibly hospitable. And I didn't have any money. I had $150 for the three months. And so I wound up sleeping outdoors a lot. And the people would take me in. And that also kind of focused me on on uh, Latin America and also a, a real sort of a gut sympathy for immigrants and people that are, that are on the road. Have you made it to Chile since as an adult? I have. I have. <laughs> uh, not very long. We actually spent the night there because we were really trying to get to Argentina. 
And uh, so the next day, we spent the day in Santiago and then caught the bus over the Andes to uh, Mendoza, uh, Argentina, and spent uh, several weeks down there. So you flew around. have a history of almost getting to where you were trying to go and then yeah, getting there later. No, <laughs> I finally got to Chiapas here about uh, two years ago. I've been trying to get to Chiapas for 40 years. And each time, either I'd run out of money or run out of time, and I never could get there. And so, uh, uh, but yeah. Uh, so uh, there's still a lot of places I want to see. If uh, and if your travels focus mostly on Latin America, or there uh, you've been uh, seen as much of the world as you can. Pretty much, my my wife says that's all I'm interested in. But we've been to Europe, and you know, been we bicycled through. Uh, took a couple of weeks, and we bicycled through England, and then did another bicycle trip through Colombia, and. Um, um, did another bike trip through uh, across the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, which is one of my favorite places. And uh, so, yeah, just wherever I, if I can get a get a week here and there, I take off. Any specific? Uh, I mean, you you mentioned the hospitality and sleeping outside, but any specific memories as a as a broke nineteen year old from oh, yeah. Mexico? Well, yeah, well, I was I was uh, <clears throat> I was wearing my old high school football jersey, North Little Rock football jersey, and I'm standing on the side of the road. Uh, going down the Gulf Coast of uh, Mexico, south of Veracruz, and this Mercedes-Benz picks me up. And what the great thing about the Mexicans was that wherever you were, whoever you were with at night, whoever picked you up, whoever's car you were in when it went dark, they were never. They would never leave you. They would never drop you off on the side of the road and keep on going. You were. You were. You were theirs. Mm-hmm. And so this guy picked me up. Uh, about mid-afternoon, and he was headed to um, Villa Hermosa, and so it got dark. And uh, he said, "Well, why don't you stay with my family? You know, we're, we're we, this is where we live." Well, it turns out his family owned an island in the middle of a big lake, and they, <laughs> and they had a private bridge to it. And so we go over this bridge, and, and there's this mansion there, and. Uh, he wakes his wife up. So we roll in about 11 o'clock at night. He wakes his wife up, gets her out of bed, and they move to the guest bedroom so I can have the master bedroom. Yeah. And, I mean, that, that was just that variation. You know, another time you're with a, a – you're, 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 uh, you've been picked up by a cattle truck. And uh, so it gets dark. And though – you know, the guy says, uh, you know, it's time to go to bed and we're driving along. He just pulls over on the side of the road and he said, you know, I'm going to go sleep out here. And it was a desert area. He says, I'm going to go sleep out there while I was afraid of snakes. So I slept under the cattle truck and, uh, you know, just sort of a, a little bit uh, odiferous. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. But uh, anyway, it was uh, it was uh, uh, it was it was a great experience. Well, I got to ask if you're getting picked up in a Mercedes Benz, spending the night on a private island in the middle of the lake. Uh, did you ever discern what uh, profession your host was in? Mm. I don't remember, but, you know, the, the, that was all before the drug cartels. This was 1971, so it was a long time ago. And, uh, you know, in Mexico, it was much less developed. Uh, I got to the Yucatan. I got to uh, Puerto Juarez, which was um, the jumping off point to go out to Isla Mujeres. I don't know if you know that area, but back there was before Cancun was built. And so that was that road, it was fascinating. That road went from Puerto Juarez all the way to Belize, along with what's now the Mayan Riviera, but there were no hotels anywhere along there. And um, 
there was a ferry that went out to Cozumel, but I didn't have the money to take the ferry. And we went to, I hooked up with this boy from Cincinnati. And so we thumbed down to um, um, Tulum, mostly in the back of big flatbed trucks. And uh, there was, we camped on the beach for two weeks there. And now, of course, it's a it's a big tourist attraction and there's a lot of little nice little palapa roof hotels all along the beach but back then there was nothing it was really a, it was an amazing experience for a 19 year old yeah i can imagine and, and <clears throat> myself i went down to uh tijuana on some service trips around mm-hmm. the same age a little younger than you uh-huh. and and for me it really kind of changed my worldview just because you know i knew my home area and a yeah. couple other spots in the us that i'd visited but I mean that just getting immersed in that culture. How does that uh, how how does that change your uh, yeah. your 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 brain? Well, first of all, you know, just I, I tell people, Mexico there there's no place so far and so close. I mean, when you cross over, I mean, it's just you know, not only does the language uh, change, just the whole vibe changes. Of course, the food changes, and I just found it delightful and um, and just you know, around every corner, there was something new for me. And then I found that the people were so warm and I still find that today. I've, I've gone back every year practically for 40 some odd years and, uh, um, still enjoy it. Just took my kids to a fiesta in San Miguel Allende, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So you get back and, uh, jump, jump right back into the (laughs) publishing world. And cause you're at, what was Little Rock College, now Euler yeah, uh, at Euler. the time, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, so in, uh, in 1974, I went back and reread The Fountainhead for a second time and uh, decided that I was uh, just wasting time staying in school. And uh, so I, I quit school that, that semester and started, I was working at the Gazette as the weekend obituary writer, which is the lowest uh, possible rung on that particular ladder. Uh, but it was a great place to work. And uh, so I started, I sent letters out to every journalism school in the country and said, why don't you come to Arkansas and uh, be a publisher, be an owner. Uh, we'll pay you with stock certificates. The only thing is we can't pay you any money. And I got about, sir, I got, uh, I got replies from <clears throat> New York, uh, Washington Lee, uh, uh, Boston and Wisconsin. And so I took off, I decided to go interview these people. So I took off hitchhiking to New York and then up to Boston. And then I did a little detour up into Canada cause I never had been to Canada and then came back across Canada and down to Wisconsin and interviewed that boy and then came on home. And two of the people came, actually came and one of them stayed. And, uh, that was David Glenn from New York. And so that's how we we start. That was kind of our initial staff. Rod Lorenzen here at the Butler Center was on. The, he was our original production manager, and uh, he would work. Uh, he was working at the Democrat, and uh, so we all had night jobs. And uh, so it was. And then we all, a group of us, some of us lived together in the back of the office, and it was a. You know, it was kind of a, a rough start. I, I got to detour for just a second before we, we get back to the history of that. Both of these main stories we've been talking about so far involve you doing a lot of hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, I mean, obviously it was a different time, but did you, 
is there a secret to doing it well? Is it, uh, is no, it just, it was just, you realized, you know, when I, when, uh, after high school, my high school sweetheart went to Fayetteville and I stayed here and, and I didn't have a car that ran very reliably. One time I drove up there and I had all four tires go flat in, you know, 160 miles, just one after another. Right. The guy finally just stayed behind me and kept helping <laughs> me change tires. Uh, so I started hitchhiking and I realized that, you know, I could, you didn't have to have money. You could just go anywhere you wanted to go. All you had to do is stick your thumb out and be patient. Don't be in a hurry. And so uh, I, I, that summer, I, I hitched down to Miami and saw some old uh, friends from elementary school, sure. looked them up, and one of them went with me. And we got a $30 flight over to Nassau, and we slept on the beach in, in the Bahamas. And God, for an 18-year-old kid, that was just fabulous. And, uh, um you know, we could go anywhere we wanted to go. So uh, there was a real sense of freedom and uh, limitless horizon. <laughs> okay, so now I'll get I'll get us back on yeah. back on the road. Uh, so you're starting out, and you've you've got your uh, initial uh, kind of <clears throat> cobbled together staff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what what were the earliest days like? Well, they were pretty pretty bad actually. Um, uh, oh. Jim Bell at Publishers Bookshop gave us two hundred dollars. I went around asking for investments, and first call Jim Bell at Publishers gave wrote me a check for two hundred dollars uh, for stock, and I thought, well, this is going to be easy. But that was the only investment we got, <laughs> and everything else was no. And so, and Jim years later told me he you know he gave me that investment of two hundred dollars. He wrote it down in his checkbook as donation, and uh, uh, so we were broke very quickly. And I, I was, I just wanted to write and I just, I wanted, I didn't want to have a boss and I wanted to write and, um, and I wanted to write what I wanted to write. Well, we thought we'd find some Jake leg to sell some ads. And, uh, we, that's what we found was Jake legs. I remember this one guy showed up and cause all we could do is pay on straight commission. And then we had something that no one really wanted to buy. Mm-hmm. And, um, this guy came and said he was going to do it and he, he was in my office or in the living room and uh, kicked his chair back and put his head up against the wall. It was a wooden wall. When he came back down, he'd left a big grease spot on the wall. <laughs> and this was, this, this was our personnel. But anyway, so we were broke and we were going out of business. And Bill Terry, who was my, who was, Bill had gotten fired from the Democrat. And it's kind of a funny story. But anyway, Bill had gotten fired and he was, he was writing, doing some writing for us. And Bill was kind of, um, he, he had an inheritance and wasn't too worried about money. And um, so one day I said to Bill, I said, man, this, this isn't working. No one can sell any ads and we're going out of business. I said, why don't you be the editor and let me go see if I can sell some ads? And he said, fine. And so I walked down to the Shack Barbecue, uh, which was a couple of blocks from our, our office at 3rd and Victory. And dang if he didn't buy two-thirds of a page ad on the call. I thought, well, maybe I can do this. And so I went back, and so I became the ad salesman, and Bill became the editor, and, and we kind of went from there. How would you, uh, you sell it to the to a barbecue place. I just beg. I don't know. You know, I just you know went in and and um, started talking and started listening. And uh, the most important thing in selling is not talking; it's listening. 
It's asking good questions and listening to what people say because they'll tell you what they want to buy. They'll tell you what they need. And then you try to match up what you have with what they need. It's it's really pretty simple. Well, and, and people, of course, over the years talk a lot about the, the content of the times and the way it's changed and its role in history, but you still go on sales calls today. Oh yeah, no, I was I was on a sales call at eight o'clock this morning, and we sold a full page. And, uh, so yeah, so so it feels like you once you realize that was something you could do. I mean, obviously you you care about the whole operation, but that seems to be a, a specific. Oh uh, uh, yeah, I mean, for you. we've got very very competent uh, editors and very independent editors and writers. So they don't need me looking over their shoulder. Uh, what they need me to do is write them a check at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I've transitioned pretty much totally over to the, to the business side, running the company and, uh, and helping bring in revenue. And I am a good salesperson and, uh, and I enjoy it. And I enjoy the people that I, I, I visit with. And uh, so, yeah. <laughs> So it, uh, you start to get some ad revenue. You, you start to get some staff. At, at what point did you feel like you were starting to get some positive momentum? <clears throat> um, we did a story on organized crime in central Arkansas in the 70s, late 70s. And we got photographs of some business people uh, doing a come on back, come on back to a tractor trailer load of stolen tires and pursued that and did a lot of work on the Little Rock Police Department, which was very corrupt at the time. Um, the Tucker case and all of that. The Tucker case, but also the Glasscock case. And it's, it's interesting. We published that story recently, a, a, sort of a memoir, because Glasscock, who was Jim Guy Tucker's deputy as a, as a, uh, um, in the attorney general's office, he had irritated the Little Rock PD, and when he came over the border from Mexico, he and his wife had been on vacation. They found marijuana in his back seat, and he wound up going through a horrendous legal uh, uh, showdown. And interestingly, and I didn't put two and two together at the time, but then I guess it had been a year or two earlier when we did the Tucker story and we had the tape recording of the assistant chief of police hiring a thug uh, to uh, Larry Case to plant dope in the backseat of Jim Guy Tucker's car. And then you got you kind of got an idea of the M.O. at that time. As if, they had a, if they had a political target or someone that was giving them grief, uh, as Tucker was and as Glasscock had, uh, that was what they did. They planted drugs on them. And uh, the the immigration people, the customs people at, in, at the border in Mexico knew exactly. They went right to his back seat. I mean, they had already been tipped, uh, Glasscock. They had already been tipped uh, that there was drugs in his back seat. And sure enough, there was when they pulled the back seat out. So <clears throat> it was a rough bunch of people. And uh, they killed people. Uh, one of the, uh, it was kind of funny if it wasn't so bad, but there was a guy, there was a, a druggist who was a, a, a criminal down here at, uh, I think it's where um, the, um, the ice cream company is now, down here at, um, oh, help me. Are we Loblolly? Yeah, Loblolly. Yeah. I think it's where Loblolly is now, I'm not sure. But anyway, he, there used to be a drugstore there, and the cops wanted, they didn't like this guy. 
Then there was a thug that they wanted to, they wanted to get rid of. And so what they did, uh, they had an undercover policeman hire this guy to go in and rob the drugstore of drugs. And he stayed at the downtowner Motor Inn, which is now gone. Uh, it was down here off of like 6th or 7th Street in Louisiana. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. 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 And um, so, but, so they hired him. He thought he was working for a, a criminal. He was actually working for the police. His, the police was his employer. And uh, so the night before he was to go into this drugstore, and, uh, and I don't remember if he was supposed to kill this guy or if he was supposed to rob it. But anyway, he goes in. And the night before, the police break into his uh, uh, room and they pull the firing pin out of his pistol. And don't you know? And then they slip back out. Well, the next day, he goes into the um, um, the drugstore, pulls a gun. Well, this druggist is is uh, he's he's just loaded for bear in there, and uh, so he pulls his gun. This guy starts to shoot and realizes his gun isn't working. So he comes flying out of the front door into the arms of Parkman, Forrest Parkman, who was who was one of the, I guess he was the third in command of Little Rock PD at the time, and about six or eight other policemen, and they just blow him to pieces. It's like it's like the, um, um, what do you call it, the... the Butch Cassidy and the yeah, Sundance the Kid, scene, the yeah. final scene. Right. Well, that happened on Main Street in Little Rock, and they just blew him apart. And so the idea was they figured he would, you know, that something would happen to the druggist, something would happen to him, and they would kill two birds with one stone. But that was, that was so we, we did a lot of reporting. We had really good sources within the, within the police department. And so we did a lot of stories. We did a year's worth of stories. And, uh, um, that kind of people started paying attention at that point, and it wasn't just the wasn't just the hippies. It was people kind of going, "All right, well, these guys look like they're trying to do something," and, and we were. Well, and it sounds like that uh, that nexus developing for you personally between you know you talk about your libertarian uh, <clears throat> individual rights, and then but then of course social justice at the same time, uh, more of a, a champion cause of the left. Well. My 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 change in in political outlook was was very very slow. I mean, it, it went over decades. And uh, but when I was, I, you know, I grew up in the suburbs. And um, uh, when I the job that I settled on, when I everybody had, like I said, everybody had to have a night job. Well, my job was uh, drove a yellow yellow cab at night. And I did that for two and a half years, and it was a great job because you could make twice the minimum wage on a, on, a, on an ordinary night. You'd make five dollars. You could net out after paying for your, all your expenses, your cab rental and your your uh, um, your gas. You could make five bucks an hour, and I think the minimum wage then was two something, two twenty five an hour. So you you can make decent money, and also they didn't care if you showed up or not. So if you got busy, you'd work all day at the times, and then if you got busy, you could keep working if you something really needed you to do. And if, but ordinarily at five o'clock, then I'd go down to the cab company down here across from City Hall and uh, uh, get my my taxi. That was a portion of an interview with Alan Leverett, publisher and co-founder of the Arkansas Times, on Primary Sources. To hear more of the interview with Alan Leverett. 
visit the Primary Sources podcast at cows.org slash podcast. Arkansas Sounds presents a special screening of the 40th anniversary edition of Martin Scorsese's iconic film, The Last Waltz, on Friday, January 27th at 7 p.m. Relive or experience for the first time the band's historic 1976 farewell concert in the -the state-of-the-art Cal's Ron Robinson Theater. Fans can rock out to performances not featured in the original film and celebrate a moment in history featuring two Arkansas music legends, Levon Helm and Ronnie Hawkins. Tickets are $5. Purchase tickets at www.arkansasounds.org or at the Butler Center Galleries. Radio Cows is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System and its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. For more information, visit cows.org and butlercenter.org. Our producer is Glenn Whaley, and our production manager is Brett Ratliff. Voices by Jasmine Job and John Miller. Engineering and editing by Brett Ratliff, Michael Stotts, and Anna Lancaster. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin and David Strickland. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week Wednesday at 6 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 Little Rock.